time, uh, but there were various laws uh, that criminalized activities that were essentially central to, to gay social life. Uh, this included, of course, same-sex activities themselves, actual sex acts, uh, but also a, a broader swath of social activities, including even just flirting with someone at a bar or at a park. Essentially inviting someone home for a sexual encounter was also criminalized directly uh, in, a, in a lot of states. Um, and the book also looks at, at a series of civil regulations. So these aren't criminal laws, but civil regulations that prohibited bars, for example, from serve, knowingly serving gay and lesbian patrons. So uh, this was another way that the law tried to shut down gay social spaces. And in the 30s, where, where you kind of start, what was it like for gay people or, or, or bisexual people? people what, what, were they, what was it like to socialize or go out? Are there constant panic about getting arrested? All right, so the 30s are this really interesting period. Uh, it, it really varied by, by city, I should note. And of course, bigger cities, I think, had, had a more active um, commercial life that, that made space for, for, for gay individuals. Um, but the 30s are this interesting period because the 30s begin while we're still in the Prohibition era. Um, and on the one hand, during the Prohibition era, it's illegal to serve alcohol, period. Um, but because of that, there's this robust network of saloons that arises that's already flouting the law in serving alcohol and has already, has, has already come to certain understandings with local police officers um, where essentially uh, they're allowed to, these bars are allowed to, to function in, in violation of the law. So in, in the early 1930s, in a sense, there's actually greater leeway um, for bars uh, and restaurants that might uh, essentially cater to, to another type of an, an orthodox clientele or a clientele that might catch the attention of the police. Once uh, prohibition uh, is repealed uh, and once the state gets into the, the, the project of regulating alcohol, uh, that's really when uh, bars start encountering police officers and liquor agents as a regular part of their operations. Uh, and that's really uh, when the state essentially begins to mobilize to surveil uh, and prohibit these types of spaces. And um, you examine the tactics of police, obviously. What What's going on? I did some research of the book. I, I Whoa, like cops looking through peepholes and two-way mirrors and bathrooms. And what's going on here? What What's what's inspiring this type of surveillance? Right. So one of, you know, one of the things I, I really hope readers take away from the book is, is just the sheer effort that went into policing gay communities precisely because gay men and women weren't the social threat that police officers claimed they were. Uh, this type of enforcement required an immense amount of labor, time and resources. Um, and so I, I look in particular at, at two tactics, which, which I think were, in, in some sense, the, the bread and butter uh, of, of vice squads that were targeting gay individuals. Uh, one is the essential entrapment of gay men through the use of undercover police officers. Uh, and what you see over the course of the 1950s and increasingly the 1960s is police officers learn to dress like gay men. They, they essentially they learn the social codes that gay men use uh, to flirt with each other in bars and parks and, and other spaces. Uh, and so, they, again, they put in really a, a lot of effort um, and, you know, one might say ingenuity, manipulation into fooling gay men, essentially, and into, into trusting them uh, and potentially into making an advance. Um, and the other key tactic is clandestine surveillance in public bathrooms. Um, so, so public bathrooms, uh, come, known as tea rooms, are another really important space of, of, of gay sexuality at, at a time where a lot of men didn't feel able to bring partners home. And so police officers in, in many cities uh, devise these, uh, again, in some ways incredibly innovative and creative 
observation posts for spying on public bathrooms. And this includes drilling peepholes into, into toilet stalls. It includes hiding in ceilings and looking through air vents. So it includes you know, two-way mirrors with cameras behind them. Um, so it's, there's a, the creativity uh, to which the Vice Squad resorts, right? It, it, there's a certain absurdity to this story. It's, um, how much time and, and energy and money is going into this type of policing? Right. Well, it's, so it's, it's hard to um, to know that with any precision, in part because police officers really don't keep or share oh, those yeah, just records. Anecdotally, I'm, I was yes, <laughs> anecdotally. for so, a figure, Anna. I need a figure. Right. I need an in- invoice. Exactly. What I, what I will say is vice departments are, are definitely in some sense embarrassed by the amount of effort they put into this work. And so when they're interviewed about this, when they're asked about this publicly, they always downplay the extent to which they actually spend time. Oh, um, because they, they, right, they recognize that there's something an unseemly and sordid about vice officers and spending a lot of their time spying on, on both sexual and other acts in public bathrooms. Um, and so they definitely, they, they put in much more time and effort into this work and training new vice officers to engage in this work than they admit they're, they're doing in public. And what's, what's inspiring this type of policing in, in these legal battles? Is, is it just the, the, the crazy moral, I'm going to say crazy, um, moral <laughs> panic or panic about the gay, gay people? Or what, what's inspiring all this effort? Right. So there are, you know, there, there are various laws that target same-sex conduct going back centuries, really, and, and you know, that, that has deep roots in essentially Judeo-Christian morals, as you say. I, I think a number of factors really combine um, right after World War, World War II to contribute to this heightened campaign. Um, so partly it's the shifting demographics of American cities following World War II, uh, gay and lesbian enclave, enclaves and in, in, in major urban centers uh, really grow as, as a lot of essentially single people who are empowered by their experiences during the war, often who need partners and friends uh, in service, as a, a lot of uh, individuals come to cities. Um, partly uh, what you're seeing uh, is just the rise of police professionalization and specialization in particular. Uh, one common trend uh, in the mid-20th century is for police departments in, in major cities, again, to, to essentially divide their work into specialized units like vice squads. And when you're a member of a vice squad and you're asked to maximize arrests, it's often much easier to essentially go to a gay bar and arrest a gay man than it is uh, to, to find you know, potentially predatory uh, offenses or, or offenders. Um, and another uh, key uh, element is there, there are a number of, of social panics that are more specific to the, to the mid 20th century. Um, so partly in the beginning of the 1930s, again, in, in the early 1950s, uh, there's a series of, of panics over violent sex crime. You know, most of the actual uh, offenses, the case studies that are fueling uh, these panics actually involve uh, murder or assault of, of young girls by, by male offenders. So this has very little to do with, with gay life. Okay. Um, but nevertheless, it, it fuels this demand for the policing of sexual difference generally. Um, and the other is during the, the Cold War, essentially Senate Republicans during the Truman administration, uh, in addition to, to hunting communists, uh, decide to, to launch a, a crusade against uh, gay men and lesbians in federal government. Um, this is largely you know, a, a, a very um, exploitative campaign or strategic campaign to discredit the Democratic administration. Um, but this uh, is known as the Lavender Scare, this uh, hunt for, for, for again, uh, 
state federal workers, uh, lends an air of national significance and political significance to the vice squad's arrests. And this allows vice officers to justify their work as well. Now, do these cases hold up in court? Are people going to jail time or even prison time? What, what's going on? So this, this really varies by city. Um, to the extent, you know, do, do they hold up in court? Are they legal? Technically speaking, most of these arrests, you know, they, they are legal. The fact of the matter is that at this time, uh, states actually do criminalize this conduct. And although police officers engage in a lot of extremely morally appalling conduct, uh, typically the, the, um, the threshold for legal defense based on police misconduct is extremely high. So, for example, because it's so difficult to make out a case of entrapment, uh, even cases where police officers spend hours flirting with gay men and bars don't typically qualify as, as entrapment per se. Um, but what you see, particularly with a lot of the uh, these entrapment arrests, is judges often really dislike this type of work, um, sometimes because they're sympathetic to defendants, more sympathetic than police officers at least, um, but often for a range of, of really self-serving reasons. You know, judges don't like petty cases clogging their own dockets. Judges might think that police resources might be better spent um, on, on, on more serious offenses, a lot of judges sympathize with the individual defendants who are coming in, who frankly often remind judges of themselves. You know, some, one thing that's really unusual about anti-gay policing is it's bringing a lot of wealthy, middle-class white defendants into court who remind judges of themselves. Um, and also judges don't like entrapment tactics. They find something very, very sordid and unseemly about this. So one thing the book looks at is, is the number of ways that judges develop somewhat informal, creative mechanisms of resisting the vice squad's arrests. Certainly this doesn't undo entirely the harm uh, that the men who are arrested by the police suffer, um, but they do, for example, push back against, for example, prosecutors who want jail terms, uh, or they, you know, they, they push back against more draconian punishments that the law prescribes, uh, and they try at least to minimize the effects of some of these arrests. And and again, this the, these type of raids go on through the '60s. Um, when when do they kind of die out, or when what what happens there? What 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 turned the tide, so to speak? Right. And so in a sense, they've never fully died out. You know, there there are still headlines um, today over recent years of, of stings in public parks or in cruising grounds. Mm, okay. um, but I but the the book essentially suggests that the, the heyday of this type of enforcement is really the 1950s through the 1960s. And by the late 1960s, uh, these types of um, police campaigns essentially, you know, against private consensual conduct uh, is really on its way out um, for, for a variety of, of reasons. Um, partly, you see you know, greater activism uh, and, and more vocal organizing by the gay community itself, uh, and as well as civil, civil libertarians by the end of the 1960s who are challenging police entrapment and surveillance tactics. Uh, in part as, as you know, a, a component of a broader challenge against police abuses in these years, in the 1960s, see a lot of criticism of, of police abuses against black individuals as well. So in some ways, anti-gay policing strikes some critics as you know, another variant of essentially an abuse of state power against a marginalized community. Um, you also see the Supreme Court uh, decides uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, for example, also recognizes a certain right to marital sexual privacy. Um, so that also gives a lot of critics a new vocabulary for essentially defending a right of sexual privacy that applies to gay men and women themselves. Uh, and partly what, what you see happening, I argue, 
uh, is that as the American public learns more about gay life uh, and recognizes that gay communities uh, are really, you know, essentially a harmless part of the urban landscape mm-hmm. and not the type of social dangers that police officers have long claimed they are, uh, the American public begins to see anti-gay policing as increasingly absurd and increasingly excessive. And so there's this turn against the notion of police officers engaging in such outrageous, outlandish tactics to target an essentially harmless community. And and one thing I wanted to ask, uh, when when it you have the LGBT plus community uh, back back in the day, the 50s, 60s, are are these raids being covered by the press? Are they are, are what was the press's role in kind of um her you know going after people like people have right to private or they have a, you know a right to be private and live their lives and and is this getting out in the press? What what was the coverage like? Right. So the um really the national press has very little to say about this. There's a certain norm uh, against discussing gay life in general. Local newspapers and tabloids are much more likely to cover uh, these types of raids. And for the most part, um, including through the 1960s, the coverage is, um, it's fairly favorable to the police or, you know, it purports to be neutral in a way that's effectively favorable to the police. So local newspapers often um, would just report the names of of men who had been arrested uh, or who had been caught in raids of, of gay bars, uh, which was also incredibly damaging to, to, to these, uh, it was typically men uh, in these years, incredibly damaging to individuals whose employers, whose family members might not know that they're gay. Um, but the national press typically didn't uh, until the 1960s. And starting in the 1960s, there's really this uh, explosion of interest in urban gay life in general. Uh, and part of that, of course, is, is an interest in, in the policing of urban gay life. And at that point in the 1960s as well, the coverage becomes more critical mm-hmm. uh, as reporters and in, in you know, newspapers and in major magazines uh, really begin criticizing either particular cases that might have led to unusually steep sentences uh, or just the practice of police entrapment and clandestine surveillance. Wow. And, and I know we're running out of time, but I, I, I have to ask you one more question. And I, I sorry, I'm taking your life, of course, no, time away from you. Uh, this, the, let's talk about Stonewall, the Stonewall uprising 1969 in New York at the Stonewall Inn. How I mean, six days of people um, out in the streets protesting this this particular um, raid that went on by police. How yeah. does how does how does St- Stonewall is the turning point, right? Because now it's all out in the open what their police are doing, right? So I, you know, I, I think Stonewall is an incredibly uh, important uh, testament to, to gay organizing, and it's also the start of a, of a newly vocal and a newly aggressive form of, of gay liberatory politics. Uh, but I, I do think it's important. My, my story really ends at Stonewall, mm-hmm. um, in part because uh, I do think of the nineteen end of the nineteen sixties as, as a turning point in the, in the demise of these practices. Um, but I do think it's important to recognize that by the time we get to nineteen 19- 69, a lot of um, these particularly reviled vice enforcement tactics uh, are already um, are already on their way out through the organizing uh, and the activism uh, of, of gay men and women and, and allies, legal allies, civil libertarians uh, in the years prior. Um, so I think what you see in the 1960s and what in some ways Stonewall really encapsulates is that the policing of gay life switches from um, you know, these extremely surreptitious, creative, undercover tactics 
um, which again target um, men and women of all races, of all of all uh, socioeconomic statuses, uh, to really the use of just uniformed officers to harass and surveil areas of gay life that are, you know are, frankly are, are, are more representative of, of the types of communities that are targeted by policing now. So increasingly, communities of color, gender nonconforming communities, um, and you see that in Stonewall as well, where Stonewall is essentially you know the spectacular display of uniformed police power against a bar uh, that's that's very popular with with individuals of color non uh, and you know trans individuals uh, as opposed to the use of clandestine surveillance and, and undercover officers infiltrating middle class gay bars oh, oh, uh, Anna Lavosky thank you so much for tuning in tuning in Colin well you're tuning in technically uh, Vice Patrol everyone that's cops courts in the struggle over urban gay life before Stonewall is the book check it out Anna thanks for coming on and thank you for doing this work I think it's so important for history to be documented so we because we can look at it today I guess and see the parallels oh. Thank you so much for your interest in the book and for this incredible conversation. I know we have to have you on again. I'm just going to keep, I've kept <laughs> you so late. To, I'd love to be back anytime. got to come on soon. Anna, have a great and productive day. Talk to you soon. You as well. Bye-bye. And thank you all for tuning in this morning I'm here weekdays at 8.15. If you came in late or you would like to listen to uh, other episodes, they're up there as a podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Audible. Check it out. We have we have been having great guests um, for, for months now. For I don't know how long I've been on this show. It's a while. I'm pretty lucky. I want to give a shout out to my booker, Kevin Assam. We've had, you know, write, authors, scholars, research scientists, communities comedians, actors, artists of all kinds. And I just appreciate him and, and you, the listener. Thank you for the support. If you'd like to follow me on social media uh, as a reporter, I mean, I, you could look at pictures of dogs that I know, but uh, my Facebook report, the reporter page is my name, Gwen Filosa, a journalist in Key West. I'm on Twitter at Key West Gwen and I have Instagram, but again, it's just dog photos and sort of like, here's the ocean. You might like that. I don't know. But I'm uh, going to push on with the best alternative rock that we play here all day and night. And I'll be back with uh, some news and headlines and, and uh, the weather forecast. This is The Killers. Smile like you mean it. Island 1069. Stick around, everyone. <laughs>